Hello, everybody. This is Paul Valberding from uh, UCSF, and I'm going to tread water here for a, just a minute while we uh, bring more people uh, into the dialogue today. Um, this is another one of the series of these very informal um, discussions that we've had over the past three years of the pandemic, uh, touching on COVID especially, but uh, but wandering to other viral pathogens especially. And I think that'll certainly continue today, given some of the uh, recent developments in vaccines and other areas. Uh, so today uh, we have um, a couple of our usual discussants, Peter Chin Hong from UCSF, um, Carlos Del Rio from Emory. Uh, and today we're really honored to have um, uh, our local epidemiologist, Caitlin Jetlina, um, who's currently at, uh, at uh, UT um, Health in, uh, in Houston. Um, everyone uh, that's on this call has done a lot of these discussions before. We look forward to the, to the give and take. Um, and I'll, I'll ask uh, each of you to uh, uh, give a little bit more background to your, to your own uh, stories uh, than I did. Peter, do you want to start? Sure. Hello, everybody. Um, I'm Peter Chenong. The, I'm professor of medicine in the Division of Infectious Diseases at UCSF. I I um, I'm, do a lot of medical education and uh, some clinical research. During the pandemic, everything kind of came uh, to the forward uh, and intersected for me. Did uh, some trials, um, did a lot of communication, uh, as people know, and when we got the reprise with Mpox, um, kind of did everything over in 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 fast forward. So uh, that's me, and now I'm just trying to pick up uh, life from where we left off uh, before 2020. Great, great, Carlos. Tell us about your background. Well, Car Carlos Carlos Del Rio. I'm a professor of medicine, uh, epidemiology, global health at Emory University. And I'm also the, the co-director of the Emory Center for AIDS Research. And like all of us that do HIV, we started doing COVID. And now, you know, I'm also a co-PI of the Emory Vaccine Treatment Evaluation Unit. So we do a lot of vaccine trials and uh, a lot of research in respiratory viruses. And I'm currently in the hospital seeing patients. So I'm seeing, uh, you know, I got a couple of people hospitalized with severe influenza. So we can talk about all those things. We will. We will. I'm sure we will. Uh, and Carlos is also president of the Infectious Disease Society of America. Past presidents. I just, I, I just, okay. I just, I just ended as, my my presidency, so I'm, I'm currently as of a yesterday. Lame, <laughs> as of yesterday, I'm a lame dog past president. But like you, I'm a member of the board of directors of the ISUSA, and we're really happy that ISUSA has expanded from being, you know, just about uh, HIV to really uh, be about antivirals and talking about different right, right. viral infections. Excellent, Caitlin. Uh, welcome. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Caitlin Jetalina. I'm an epidemiologist um, who kind of stumbled into this world of scientific communication over the past three and a half years um, and now focusing very much on improving trust in public health. How do we better communicate during crises and um, working with a lot of people at the CDC, at the White House, um, thinking strategically about this, but very excited to be here. And I'm glad we're Great. still talking about COVID. A lot of people yeah. aren't. So. <laughs> and, 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 and I would say that if you don't read uh, Dr. Jetlina's uh, blog, uh, you should subscribe. It is an right. incredible source of information. So please subscribe and use this. It's really well done. 
And uh, one of the things I hope we get uh, back to, uh, Caitlin, is uh, your comment about kind of operating in the p political world. Uh, last week at the IDSA meetings, uh, Peter Hotez uh, got a got a great award and gave a very hard hitting uh, uh, commentary on what it's like to kind of hit back at some of the uh, some of the misinformation, the intentional misinformation that he's encountered, and some of the personal threats. So I'm I'm hoping we can get into that a, a bit. But I want to start with just um, kind of as I think a number of people already mentioned that. Uh, Wow, is there COVID still? Um, and I, I was amazed at the IDSA meetings. Um, these are this is like ten thousand infectious disease people. Um, almost no masks, um, and there was a lot of talk about COVID. But um, it seems as though people are are moving on. Anyone want to start uh, uh, talking about Caitlin? Why don't you start? You're you're our you're our guest today. Yeah, I mean, I think we're um, continue to move into this direction uh, yeah. for better or for worse of individualized decision making. And that depends a lot on individual risk tolerance. And um, I think that slowly but surely COVID-19 is becoming uh, more normalized in our repertoire of threats. I think people are becoming more comfortable with it. Um, and uh, it it is decreasing a little right now. I I still have hope, even among ID doctors, that we'll put on masks again, especially at the height of the respiratory um, uh, outbreaks this this winter. But it is to be determined whether um, we're going to normalize mask wearing in the United States like other countries do. Uh, and it certainly has been fascinating to me to kind of watch that uh unfold the behavioral aspect of it unfold over the past couple of years well you know i, I would say, I would, ahead, say yeah. I would say that that i agree uh but i would also say that what i'm seeing a lot is is let's say people wear masks like here in the hospital i still see a lot of mask wearing and i'm one of them but then you go out to social events right i mean so so people are getting infected in 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 parties and social events and as I told somebody the other day, especially for young people and for people who have been vaccinated and, and maybe many of them, most of them infected, you know, they're 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 clearly at risk of of, of getting infected. But I think the uh, the what what we saw at ID Week, the the pleasure of people being together, the mental health benefit of being together, in my mind, far outweighs the risk of COVID when you see what what we've done with the isolation and the mental health issues and to me what what i saw the most at id week i mean we saw good science but most of what we saw is really happy people that wanted to be together and the joy of of seeing your friends seeing your colleagues and i think that's very therapeutic and we should not forget that there is a component of you know we are social animals we are social beings and as 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 such that we we thrive on that that relationship that exists and and uh and and you know seeing people you know i was telling somebody the hispanics in id had a party and i can tell you that there was more recruitment into id in the dance floor than there was in the poster floor you know <laughs> that's good uh, so peter uh carlos has mentioned that he has a couple of patients uh, hospitalized with influenza 
Uh, I was wondering, kind of, what what are you seeing uh, at UCSF? You're uh, an inpatient ID doc. Um, how much COVID is there currently? How many people on the wards? Compare that to what it was like, you know, back in the bad days in the, in 2020. Yeah, so there are several key differences right now. The first is just uh, just numerically, there are about 20 people now in four UCSF hospitals uh, in the city. Uh, in the height of the last increase in cases over the winter, maybe it was about 100, 120. So that kind of gives you some perspective. And uh, maybe during the summer, it got to around um, 25, 30. So, but uh, there are some differences with the people in the hospital. First of all, nobody is in the ICU right now of the 20, um, of the 15, sorry. Nobody's ventilated, and the stay, the length of stay of people right now in the hospital is generally shorter. Um, uh, so people sometimes get admitted because they're immune compromised, and we're not really sure what the trajectory is. So that's kind of what I'm seeing. And the people who are hospitalized, uh, you know, that theme has continued, which is uh, people generally who are hospitalized are older. They haven't been boosted, um, and um, and and that pattern continues. We have seen, you know, there have been a, a few blips of influenza cases um, as well. Uh, so I don't think we're going to let up with influenza this year, uh, despite having a season last year that uh, where the death rate, I think, was a, or, or the number of deaths were, were around 58,000 or so, which is a, a bad flu season. Didn't really get a lot of press, right. but um, it was not. Uh, like a 35,000 flu season year. So, um, so Kaylin, you're, uh, you're an epidemiologist, right? You're tracking numbers, uh, you're, you're following trends. Um, we can all remember in the days when things were reported, uh, when we had um, a pretty good sense of how many people were getting infected by the number of tests that we saw. Uh, that's gone away, right? Uh, we don't, um, have test, individual test reports anymore. Um, I'm even hearing of people that aren't bothering to test um, uh, if they're not very sick. Uh, how are you following the trends in this, uh, given uh, given those those changes? Yeah, there's been dramatic changes, um, not only on an individual level, right? Not testing, um, not being severe enough to think you need to test, um, more being asymptomatic, but there's also now we're out of a public health emergency. So the, the lines of data requirements to report up to the CDC, for example, have all but gone away. Um, another big blip, so usually to answer your question, I look at wastewater. Um, and honestly, you know, I, I love looking at biobot wastewater. It, they do a beautiful <laughs> presenting it. There was a big change, though, in the past month. I don't know if this is big news in the epi world, is that biobot lost its contract to CDC, and now it's going to Verily. And so we're in this space right now where we're kind of flying blind. We don't know what the wastewater looks on a national or regional trends. We can so what I've started doing is just looking at very hyper local, um, like Boston, San Diego, just to kind of try to understand where we're at. But it's really challenging. Um, I think the CDC, if you ask them, they would say look at their emergency department visits uh, data 
hospitalization data and deaths data, but of course that's decoupled from infections. Um, and so it's gonna be only get harder to um, navigate or just to know the respiratory climate out there right now. So I, 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 I recommend, I, recommend I, I tell people that I'm doing what's called friends and family epidemiology. You know, if, if your friends and family are getting infected, there's a lot of COVID out there. So just look at look at people that tell you, I tested positive, I tested positive, and use that as if more than one in 10 of your relatives or or close acquaintances are infected, there's probably a lot of circulation out there. And I think you need to you need to use all that information to to try to decide what you're going to do. Uh, but but I would say I agree with Peter. The, the the COVID we're seeing in the hospital is very different. And and you know I I, I saw a patient the other day who who came in uh, uh, you know with with a uh, a, a trauma and uh, and she you know she tested positive for COVID, but but because they did a PCR again, we're doing very sensitive tests. And when I went down to a lab because I didn't think she had anything related to COVID and we went down to a lab and she had a CT value of 42, right? So she clearly, and then when you talk to her, she had COVID three weeks ago, but she's not in the hospital with COVID. She's in the hospital because she had trauma. Right, but right. You would count her as a positive test because we're doing, most of our hospitals are still doing, doing PCRs and the PCRs are incredibly sensitive. So a lot of the testing in the hospital also has very little value, quite frankly. So um, let me uh, dip into the, the politics just a bit. Um, there, the, you know, clearly there are going to be histories of what we've been through written for years to come. Um, one of the one of the concerns that I heard very early in the epidemic was that uh, the CDC was struggling, um, be, in part because there was no national requirement for data reporting uh, to this to the CDC. Um, is that changing? Are we um, are we willing to have national data reporting, or is that again, like everything here, too political to uh, to to see? I think we're worse than we've ever been, right? I mean, I think unfortunately, you know, first of all, CDC does not get data. Every state they have to negotiate with every state with every jurisdiction in order to get the but data. But I know, I know. Is that is but that changing, Carlos? I, that... I think it's I think it's not going to change. And I think actually you're seeing even more push to not share data with CDC and take uh, you know take uh, quite frankly the powers away from CDC. And I'm very concerned about that. The political backlash against public health is really frequently centered on CDC. And and I think we need to we need to change that. And I think Dr. Mandy Cohen realizes that this is very important and we need to have a strong CDC and we need to have an empowered CDC in order to have a strong public health. But I'm worried that there's a lot of political push to, to try to take things away from CDC that I think will, is really going to hurt our nation. I wonder if no information is better than misinformation. I don't know. Caitlin, do you want to um, dip into this? Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with Carlos in that there is definitely a political angle here. I do know that um, there's a lot of work trying to um, figure out a way in which we can get data to better stream even more quickly, even if it's just during emergencies. So, for example, if we see another MPOC, another type of pox, for example, how can we quickly activate instead of trying to get these data use agreements for literally every local, every state jurisdiction. That's what, I mean, it takes forever. It's just not um, useful, honestly. The other challenge here is 
um, really systemic challenges in the public health system that we have a very decentralized, fragmented public health system in the United States. And we require uh, and we're set up so that data moves from the bottom to up to CDC. Um, and that's very much needed because public health is local. However, can we figure out again how to do this better? I do know that even though states and local jurisdictions aren't required to report data, some still are, um, which is helpful. For example, with vaccination data, um, vaccination coverage, it's super useful. They're still required to report hospitalization data. However, that's going away in 2024. And there's a lot of talks on how do we keep that going? Um, because that seems to be the bare minimum is hospitalizations and deaths. So. I don't know. I, I don't know if it's going to get better. Um, I do know that a ton of people are trying and pushing against the resistance. Um, and we'll kind of see how that plays out uh, in the years to come. Yeah. So and, again, and, and again, we, we really need to have have data and to have, you know, as a nation, it's 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 the information is is the intelligence we need in order to make smart decisions. So, uh, I, I mean, I think all of us Many of us who are in this call may not be in public health, but if you're in clinical medicine, you have to lobby for this. You have to really talk to Congress about how important this is. This is, this is like cutting the, uh, I mean, cutting the data that goes in providing information that allows us to act promptly, and not having that in my mind, it's it's really uh, terrible because it will not allow us. I mean, you thought that response to COVID was bad, without data is going to be even worse. So I've let us get. Um off onto a fairly political uh, uh, attack. And I know that a lot of the people on the call, I mean, everyone's thinking about that, of course, but um, but I want to get to some more practical things as well. Um, so right now, um, there's three vaccines out there. Um, there's a, a new COVID vaccine, there's flu, there's uh, RSV. Uh, Peter, do you want to uh, talk about the, the the scene in terms of uh, the triple vaccines and what what's what's happening right now? What what we're recommending to people? Yeah, so um, right now we have three vaccines for the first time ever, as uh, Paul said. Um, the way I think about it is, uh, from a clinical perspective, is uh, COVID and influenza. They're like yin and yang, oil and vinegar. They go together. We have lots of experience of doing that. Um, and then RSV is a little bit different. Um, I think uh, the sort of, it, you know, it's new, it's recommended for people over 60. There's also an RSV for kids that we can talk about both for pregnant persons in the third trimester and uh, for kids, there's a monoclonal antibody for those uh, under eight months and under or a little bit older if you have more immune compromise. But I think for the most part, um, um, you know, I think it's a good idea, uh, obviously, for COVID and influenza. And for RSV, I think, um, you know, if it were uh, my family, I would definitely tell them to get it. But the sort of um, talk to your clinician CDC uh, statement was really about the fact that it was new and that there were 20 cases of AFib and, um, you know, uh, six cases, I think, of neurologic complications uh, in the, you know, tens of thousands of people who got the vaccine. So that's being sorted out. I think everyone thinks it's still safe. And the juice is definitely worth the squeeze if for the RSV, if you are older than 60 and have uh, lung disease, heart disease, 
which is men, which is a large population uh, over 60. So that's kind of how it shakes up. I think the timing is good right now to get it. Um, you know, sometime before Halloween, uh, you can kind of peak all the antibodies. And because <laughs> the COVID vaccine is uh, XBB 1.5, which is similar, similar to what's circling right now, very similar, I think people might get surprisingly a little bit of a force field against um, infection too for, you know, more than you would know, because I think we don't expect to get much coverage for infection. But I think because it's so similar, you might get a little bit of a bonus uh, apart from the serious disease hospitalization, hospitalization and death. And of course, um, you know, the other issue that people think about is long COVID uh, reduction, although long COVID is probably diminishing in risk over time. So I was so surprised I think, so that IDSA, uh, Carlos, let me just jump in here, that um, the data that I saw was kind of surprisingly weak in terms of uh, COVID vaccines protecting infection. Um, didn't seem striking. It seemed to wane fairly quickly. Um, so I, I know that there's the, there's the issue of vaccines decreasing serious disease, but... Um, how how good are they at preventing actual infection? Do we, do yeah, we have good handles they're, on that? They're, they're good for a short period of time. You get good protection of infection that wanes probably about three months after you got yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, that's, so, that's so, pretty quick, yeah. Well, that's very quick. But again, you know, these vaccines were never designed to prevent infection. And, and that's not, in fact, how the studies were done. We found... We found, oh, yeah, by the way, they, they seem to also prevent infection, but then Delta hit us right in the face. And since then, I think the virus has gone in a different direction and less and less protection against infection you're getting from the vaccines. But you get you still get protection against severe disease, hospitalization and death, which, quite frankly, is not not trivial protection. But I think that's just part of the problem. We have not correctly messaged what those vaccines do. When you tell somebody, people say, well, I got vaccinated, I still got infected. Well, you know. These vaccines were not supposed to do that. You got infected, but you ended up in, you ended up in the hospital or in the ICU. That's a big difference. And you know, those of us that work in the hospital, Paul, it's hard to forget those early days of the pandemic yeah, yeah. where people, you know, people were immunologically naive and they were young people were coming in very serious disease and dying within 24 to 40 hours of admission. This is not minor. This is not trivial. And people forget that. We don't, we're not seeing that. And that's thanks to immunity, which is that immunity wall from vaccination and infection. But but I wanted to go back to 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 RSV because I think at ID Week there was a, a good study presented, looking at it's a large database looking at RSV hospitalizations that really at least it really helps me decide what to do with RSV vaccine right now right, and yes I agree with Peter people are over sixty but but this really says is that if you're over seventy five you really really need to be vaccinated if you're between sixty and seventy five and you have cardiac disease lung disease, comorbidities you need immunocompromised you should be vaccinated, uh, but but not everybody needs to get the vaccine because not everybody's going to have, again, severe disease from RSV. So we also need to be able to tell people and target vaccines. The problem that we have, quite frankly, is that people that need most vaccines right now, COVID, influenza, you name it, are, are older. And we don't have an adult vaccination program in this country. We have a very strong childhood vaccination program. But we really, again, as infectious disease experts and as public health experts, one of the things we need to get in this country is an adult vaccination program. We do a terrible job vaccinating adults. So when I um, went in to get my uh, vaccines recently, a couple, few weeks ago, um, I decided to go ahead and get all three. I'm definitely over 65. Um, and 
Um, I got them all at the same time. Uh, so a, a couple of questions was, A, was that the right thing for me to do? Um, I know people are, are talking about that. Um, you're still, you're still alive. So I, ask, so. <laughs> I am still alive. And I didn't ask the question of which RS, I don't know which RSV vaccine I got. Does that matter? Caitlin, why don't you start the discussion? No, both vaccines are pretty darn similar. There are very micro differences um, um, about like how they work, for example, but uh, the clinical trial data looked very consistent, um, which is great because that means you don't have to really care which one you got, kind of right. like we did flu vaccine. Good. You know? <laughs> flu vaccine, and we don't think about which one we get either. Um, I think the the COVID one was is still such a huge discussion because of the new biotechnology as well as we were seeing differences in the beginning, for example, between Johnson and Johnson and Moderna. Um, but we're just not seeing that with the RSV. So I think that's something that happened with COVID, right? I mean, when had you ever gone to the to the grocery store to the CVS and said, oh, I'd rather take the, you know, GSK vaccine than the whatever vaccine. I mean, this is just so weird. We never did that with influenza, but somehow with COVID, I get texts from people saying, should I take Moderna or Pfizer? I'm like, get whatever you can get your hands on. Right, right, <laughs> it's like, right, exactly. but, but people, I mean, this is something so different that we've seen with COVID that we did not see before with, with any vaccine, as Caitlin said. And it's just very strange but, that people are now so focused about, you know, is there a difference? And there's never, there has not been a head-to-head -head trial comparing any of these vaccines. But, so it's also maybe, funny. Uh, maybe we're going to start seeing more advertising. And so people are going to get pitched uh oh there's already it's already a yeah, ton yeah. of advertising i mean if you saw you know if you saw the so i wonder if this is gonna if this is gonna change if people are gonna start asking which flu vaccine should i get doctor um <laughs> and i tell patients get your vaccine get the vaccine you can get your hands on and, and get vaccinated right, right. i mean the other day somebody said to me oh, i was holding off until i can get uh novavax and i said why why are you holding off and they said oh i just want to try something different <laughs> and then they got and then they got covid in the meantime <laughs> right 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 exactly so there's a question uh in the in the chat uh, and by the way uh to the to the audience uh we have over 200 people with us today um uh, if you have questions uh put them in in the uh in the chat um and i'll try to i'll try to watch that uh one question uh about uh people living with hiv a uh, person with HIV over 60, but but virally suppressed. Um, should that person is, you know, is that person eligible for an RSV vaccine as well as flu? Um, who wants to pass that around? Peter, do you want to? Yes, I would definitely um, vaccinate that person. I think anybody who's even mildly immune compromised um, should get the vaccine. It's safe for people who are immune compromised. It's a protein subunit vaccine kind of like, um, you know, kind of an old fashioned vaccine that's not live. Um, so uh, safe and I, you know, we we definitely do see our RSV hospitalizations in, in many older adults. Um, and the thing with RSV is that unlike influenza or COVID, we actually have no treatment for RSV if you get it and you get it bad. So right, for right. me, prevention is, all, is probably even more important uh, in this case. So I'm I'm being corrected by our great staff and I as USA that I was telling people to go into chat. Um, actually, apparently we want you to go into Q and A, which is the other button there. But 
I'll, I'll just kind of privately say I'm watching both. So if you have a question, you can you can go in either one. Um, so uh, let's let's talk for just a second about influenza. What's uh, what's happening with that? Is that uh, what do we expect this year? I mean, before the COVID pandemic, we always heard stories. You know, is the flu vaccine this year a good one or a not a good one? And and are we having a bad flu season? Uh, what are what are we seeing? What are we expecting to see for influenza this year? And I'm not directing that anyone. Okay, anyone okay, can answer. Well, I mean, you, you, you got the data. Hey, I think we should ask our local epidemiologist first. Okay, good. Our local epidemiologist is here for a reason. Go. Um. So yeah, the the flu vaccine is actually a great match. We got great data from Southern Hemisphere showing about a 50% effectiveness rate against going to the urgent care or doctor, which is good for a flu vaccine. Um, we do not know how this flu vaccine year is going to um, play out. We think it's going to, CDC came out with forecasting, it's going to be a moderate, normal flu season. Um, the challenge why it's so unpredictable is two reasons. One, countries in the Southern Hemisphere had very different severity of flu seasons. It was very weird. Um, typically, we see some kind of normal pattern, but um, uh, Argentina saw very different things than, for example, Australia. So we don't really know that aspect. The other thing is this is really only the second winter where we have all three viruses present, um, flu, RSV, and COVID. And we're still trying to get an understanding on how the three kind of interact with each other. Um, last winter, it was very apparent that the three did not peak. In fact, they took turns. It was first RSV, then flu, then COVID. And we're all very curious in the epi world whether that's going to play out again, because if so, there's probably some sort of viral to viral interaction. So predicting what this winter is going to look like is a bit challenging. All we're really hoping for is they don't peak at the same time. Um, right now, today, levels of flu are low. They're below epidemic threshold levels, um, which means that we're it's it's on par for pre-pandemic seasons. Um, last year, we had a very early season, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see how this unfolds, um, but it it'll be interesting to watch. Kind of going back to the data, uh, Caitlin. Um... I got my, I got all three vaccines at the same time. I don't know that that's the right thing. We can talk about that. But is anyone going to be following uh, groups of people um, to see, okay, so you got your three vaccines. Um, what was your experience with the, the three infections? Are we collecting that data on any kind of a systematic way? So we're collecting data. So the answer is no, not in a systematic, comprehensive way. What we're going to have is fragments of the picture, just like we had pre-pandemic pre years, um, which means that certain hospitals are going to give data to the CDC, especially around flu. Um, we're not going to have a very great picture on vaccination coverage, for example. Like we have no idea. Well, we have a little bit of an idea of how many people have already gotten the COVID vaccine, which is about 6 million. Um, we have good surveillance for the flu vaccine. I don't even know if we're going to be doing vaccination coverage surveillance for RSV. I've not heard about that. Around the effectiveness, um, we certainly will, but it'll be retrospective. Um, and we'll be able to kind of see observational data at the end of the season to see how well right. they 
Um, the other thing I know that is coming down the pipeline, I'm actually kind of surprised it hasn't gone live yet, is if you guys remember vSafe, this um, texting tool mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. used throughout the pandemic for COVID vaccines, they're, going, they're starting to apply it to uh, the RSV vaccine as well as the flu vaccine and COVID vaccine. And I hope that at least that won't look at effectiveness, but that will look at safety. Um, it's just another uh, viewpoint on the safety. Um, and so I hope that they get that rolled out pretty darn quickly because people are getting vaccinated already. So, so, yeah, so one yeah. thing I would say, Paul, related to your vaccination, uh, uh, if I recall, and I need to look it up again, but if I recall, the CDC is recommending that yes, you can take your flu and COVID vaccine together, but they're saying if you can separate your your RSV vaccine, and that's because what Peter mentioned this 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 occasional side effects that we're seeing in the study, people CDC is trying to reverse to be sure that if those occur, they can be monitored. If you took the three vaccines at the same time there's no way for them to know if this was COVID, this was something else. So, so they're encouraging sort of this phase four surveillance to try to understand if this if these side effects are more common than they are by telling people to, to, to take their, that RSV vaccine at a separate time. But most people like you are not doing that because yeah. it's, inco if, it's if, inconvenient. If, it's inconvenient to go twice. And, yeah. and I, if, and if I, there I, is I, surveillance, right? Go ahead, Peter. Yeah. And I just think convenience trumps everything really. Uh, and a lot of people trying to try to time it like stock market and all that stuff but then you might forget and then it then when you remember it's too late so i agree with i mean i i support you getting three at the same time paul because who <laughs> knows i'm glad when you need to go back to walgreens with cbs and you know whether or not you wanted to buy that safe way for me yeah yeah safe way yeah so so um you know i we, I think a lot of us used to think of RSV mostly as a childhood uh, infection. Um, most of us aren't pediatricians. Um, and so uh, somebody talked to us about kind of what are the, what is RSV in adults? What does it look like? Uh, how serious an infection is it? How will you suspect that you have it? And how is it diagnosed? So most, most, go ahead, Carl. No, go ahead, Peter. Most most people get you know get RSV, get a respiratory upper respiratory illness. Um, I saw somebody somebody I know recently has a cough, you know, sore throat. I mean, you can't tell it apart from many other things. And we're diagnosing it because we're using a lot of, of PCRs and we're doing a lot of you know multiplex that is allowing us to diagnose. In the past, you would just say, oh, you have a cold. Now you now you can tell somebody, oh, you have meningovirus or you have this or you have that. Uh, so RSV is for people who come to a hospital for testing, right? But many are going to an urgent care center and they're getting yeah, tested, yeah. right? So, so it's. I mean, I think one thing that COVID did is it really emphasized the importance of testing, and we're seeing also more rapid testing, not for RSV, but there's now dual rapid tests for for influenza and, and COVID. So people are are testing, which I think is is people are wanting to know what do I have? Don't tell me it's just a cold, which is what we did in the past. Now, if you get to you know somebody 60, 65 year old. Uh, they'll be in the hospital. They can get very sick. They can get pneumonia. They can end up in the ICU intubated. And as Peter said, we have no treatment. This is, you know, when somebody comes in with severe influenza pneumonia, we can give them drugs. There's no drugs for RSV. So once you get somebody 60, 65 and with influenza pneumonia in the ICU, that's a bad disease that we can provide supportive care, but not more than that. And is, is it fair to say that um, it's impossible uh, to tell based on, uh, let's say, early symptoms alone, uh, RSV from influenza, from COVID, from 
the cold. Um, how, how, is there anything that that leads us uh, to to one diagnosis or another? Does it matter? I guess is the other the other question. I think in kids, it's more there's more sort of um, pathognomonic signs and symptoms um, because it causes so much mucus in the small airways that uh, there's you know um, lots of crude bronchiolitis and you know, a lot of quote unquote wheezing and, um, and that's why parents get so scared because, you know, it's really about decompressing the fluid in the kids because of the way they, the mucus comes. Um, so, so pediatricians are like clinically it's like, that's definitely RSV or that's RSV. Whereas in adults, like Carlos said, it's really, really difficult. It's like, oh, you got a cold, but then that cold that goes into your 85 year old grandmother um, might have might turn into pneumonia, whereas colds shouldn't turn into pneumonia. And that's when clinically you say, aha, uh -huh, people in the house got a cold and grandma got a pneumonia and it's not influenza. It's probably going to be like RSV. So I'm 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 now looking at the Q and A uh, uh, part of the part of the uh, uh, program here, and there are a lot of questions about about RSV vaccines. Um, one question about about um, influenza. Uh, question is: Since the recombinant flu block is not coming out this year, any question with the standard flu vaccines are uh, uh, are they are they okay? Are they inferior to to others? Um, you want to comment on specific flu vaccines? As as, as Caitlin said, the vaccines this year have a very good match for what's circulating in the Southern Hemisphere and what's circulating here right now. So again, you know, uh, any vaccine is, is gonna be, have an efficacy and effectiveness, but, you know, 60% roughly. And, and, and but there, that's a really good match and that's a, a pretty good vaccine. And the big challenge that we have in our country is the number of people that get vaccinated, right? Uh, you know, and even in people that over 60, maybe about 40% of the population, 47, of the population gets vaccinated, so so we got to get a, a better, do a better job vaccinating people. As as Walt Ornstein says to me and reminds me, you know, vaccines don't save life; vaccination does. You have to vaccinate people, and if you don't get vaccinate vaccines into arms, it doesn't matter which vaccine you have. So um, uh, I, I don't like to call out names from Q and A, even though a lot of our best friends are uh, are there. <laughs> I will say hi to Kevin Carmichael, who I saw at IDSA, um, and and Kevin's a great uh, doc in in Tucson. Uh, he has a question uh, that I can relate to. He says he's got three sons, uh, mid twenties, healthy. Uh, they've each had three vaccines. They're fully vaccinated. They've had COVID once or twice, as well as most of us have. Um, do you still recommend the new vaccine for for? Those people, or does the kind of the, does the herd immunity is that enough this year, or, or should we go ahead and continue the vaccine? Um, uh, I think I know the answer, but uh, but what 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 does our panel think? Uh, that's a, that's a difficult question, right? It's a, it's a again because uh, you you have a risk of of still getting infected, and you the vaccine is not going to protect you very much against infection. Uh, uh, in, in males and in young males in the twenties, uh, maybe they can do, they can be without a vaccine and they'll be okay. Uh, 
if they so my 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 saying to them is if they want to be vaccinated get vaccinated if they want to do it as a family activity but i'm not pushing for them to get vaccinated now uh, if they have a grandparent who's over you know the age of 65 maybe they want to take their grandparent to get vaccinated at the same time getting themselves like you know like, again as an activity like that but i don't think i'm I'm pushing to get people like that vaccinated. I think we should be a lot more targeted, which is what many countries are doing. Europe is going that way. You know, they're they're targeting. And if you look at CDC, they argue that they recommend it for everybody so the payment for the vaccine would be easier. Which is a really bad way of making yeah, public yeah. health. But that's that's unfortunately how our country structured. And I agree with Carlos too. Uh, I'll be interesting to know what Caitlin says, but um I think I agree like you know, the lowest hanging fruit, the most important population, 65 and older. I, I think some of the justification for the CDC um, was that in the sort of middle age group, um, like 35 to 44, uh, there was the highest uh, proportion of chronic symptoms with COVID. So that was kind of a soft justification by some of the U.S. census data. And then for the young uh, population, some of the justification was that it's still one of the top 10 killers. So pediatricians are really for it. But again, like Carlos said, um, the most important po population in my perspective is really those who are older than 65, um, um, you know, for the vaccine. Now, uh, one uh, question reminds me uh, where I really do think I know the answer. So. Uh, older people should get the high-dose uh, influenza vaccine. I think at, at least my uh, pharmacy was really good about looking at my age and saying, here's what you get this year. Um, uh, and I'm not going to keep calling out names, but, I, but one of our participants, uh, Orbit Clanton, says, you can call out my name. I'm the ACTG Global Community Co-Chair. Uh, congratulations. Uh, that That's good. And, and I know that you have asked uh, ask some questions. I hope I've addressed them as well. Um, uh, let's uh, talk for a minute about long COVID. That came up just in a in a passing um, a comment uh, uh, just now. Um, I don't know. Are are we still seeing it? Um, is that is it really a phenomenon of the early waves of the epidemic before vaccine and with different variants? Um, what's happening now? And then just at the same time, I saw a news story a, a few weeks ago on long colds. Um, so people saying that I had a cold, it wasn't COVID, but I've now got long-term uh, symptoms. Uh, where are we with, with these post-infection uh, uh, issues? I don't know, who wants to start this? I'm sure this is gonna be an easy discussion, right? I think Peter did a really nice job articulating that the risk continues to go down and down, which is, I think, all very welcoming to us that don't want to get long COVID. Um, and there's a couple of reasons for that, right? We have Paxlovid, we have vaccines, we have uh, infection-induced immunity. Um, how many people are getting right now as a prevalence, as an incidence, is a really, really hard question to answer um, for many reasons. Uh, we don't have good- well, We don't have a case definition for one we thing. Don't have right? a case, we don't even know how to define it yeah. uh, on a yeah. global level. Um, 
It is a true thing. Um, there's been some great work done in the lab showing viral persistence, um, these, these viral reservoirs. Um, and, and so it certainly is a thing. Um, how much it is driving my risk calculation continues to decline over time. I don't know if that's right or not, but that's kind of how I'm reading it. Um, and yeah, there's still a lot of people suffering. So we need to figure out how to help them at the same time. Um, it's, it's a tough, tough balance to uh, navigate, particularly when we're, we're communicating about long COVID. Right, right. right. I, th I think the, the, uh, the, I agree with Caitlin. I think the, the evidence is suggesting that long COVID is less common today than it was before. Is it the virus? Is it the immunity? We don't know. And there's a lot of data saying, well, you know, vaccinations protect. But the problem is, at the same time, virus is changing. It's not the same virus that we had at the beginning. So you're not comparing apples to apples. And and and, and people hate when those comparisons are happening because they're not fair. But at the same time, Paul, uh, you know, there are sensors we need. Uh, for example, treatment with antivirals. Does it change your chance of developing long COVID? Uh, we don't know. We don't have very good data. I think we need... We need a definition. We need more science. We need more pathogenesis. But I feel like in the early years of HIV, right? You and I remember the early years of HIV and and all the drugs that vaguely, didn't make any vaguely. and and all the drugs that didn't make any difference and concourse studies and things that you know didn't lead to anything. And then we had developing antiretroviral therapy that was very effective and changed the course of the disease. But we we didn't have you know people may not know this, but when we started seeing people with HIV, we didn't have, even when we knew there was a virus, we didn't have a, a marker for the virus such as viral load. That happened later. So again, yep. markers of disease progression, all those things are developed by science. And that's why, again, the science of COVID is going to take some time. But I'm confident that with research and good science, we will have a test, we will have diagnosis, we will have markers. And more importantly, we'll have therapy. Because the one thing we cannot do right now is 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 say oh this doesn't exist this is a true disease and and i think we sure, need to acknowledge sure, sure. this is reality and it needs to be addressed because there are many people suffering from it I do let, let me go ahead yeah caitlin go ahead I was gonna yeah. say, and you kind of brought this up in your question is i do think one silver lining is that it is bringing attention to other post-viral um, diseases and in ailments. Um, for example, how often do we talk about long flu before the pandemic? And now it's in a lot of conversations. And so I do hope that the awareness and our um, progress in long COVID can then be translated to other other diseases, or they're all lumped in the same pro problem. But um, I am I am hopeful in that aspect too. Yeah, I'm. I'm really excited. I think it seems to me that uh, a lot of the controversy around things like chronic Lyme and chronic fatigue syndrome, uh, EDS, um, that that we were probably seeing a variety of post-infectious um, long-term sequelae, and and I do think that the long COVID discussion has really brought those back up into the mainstream, and and hopefully we can see some real, you know, pathogenesis and treatments uh, developed uh, because of of this dialogue let me let me go to one a, a little quick thing um you know vaccine hesitancy is obviously a real a real issue um with with hiv we've discovered that you know bundling drugs is actually a, a great way to increase adherence you know we use all of our drugs in one pill 
Um, what about bundling uh, vaccines? Is that something that might might help? I mean, there's been some uh, Q and A going on here about yeah. you know going in and getting the the pharmacy recommended only two shots, and then you got to go back. Uh, is could we see a day when when we when some of these combinations of viral pathogens are are combined into a single uh, vaccine? Yeah, it's already being studied. As people might know, they might have gotten notices from Walgreens and CVS last year, even starting for an mRNA flu shot to be part of a trial. I think some of the you know companies, Pfizer, Moderna, et cetera, especially Moderna, has been re recently releasing results of the mRNA flu shot. So the, and even phase one, two, and the combo shot, because you but, have an mRNA but yeah, flu combo. What, yeah. Yeah. So there, right. yeah, I think the latest word on the street, as far as I know, is that maybe not next year, but in uh, 2025, you'd have a two-in-one, kind of like those coffees from Asian groceries, you get like two-in-one. Um, so hopefully you get two shots, <laughs> two two vaccines, one needle. I, I for one, would... Really I don't know about combination coffees. What is... <laughs> That's teach me. your Go reference. Ahead. No. <laughs> Okay. Novavax is working on it too, the flu and COVID. I also just saw news and I was trying to figure out, remember where I saw it was a measles, mumps and COVID shot. Um, so they're definitely going that direction. Oh, we've and, seen it in kids for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And like what Peter said, I would love to just have one instead of three, <laughs> but Right, so right. Coming. I think there's the um, will and the need for it in the population. They just need to figure out how to do it. So, um, you know, in the in the past, in these dialogues, we've talked about uh, about MPOX. Uh, I don't think we need to talk about it necessarily today. But, you know, it is it is obvious that we're watching um, pathogens come and come and come, <laughs> not usually go. Um, and I, I'm just wondering, I saw a piece uh, by Peter Hotez, um, who I mentioned earlier in, in the New England Journal just this week on uh, on yellow fever. Um, so anyone want to just speculate wildly on kind of what we should be thinking about in terms of the, the next uh, infectious pathogen that we should be uh, we should be worrying about? Is it yellow fever? Is it uh, which is a mosquito borne? Um, well, you know, what are we doing know, in terms of watching out for the next pandemic? Well, well you know, Pete, uh, uh, Paul, we need to we need to realize that climate change is a major driver of the changes we're seeing. Uh, there's yeah. population growth, there's population movements, there's all sorts of things, and 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 we will continue to see the emergence of a variety of different diseases that either are new, like COVID nineteen, or are old diseases that are coming back, and you know. The South, the CDC is, is is here in Atlanta because this was a malaria area. It came to the malaria area. Now we're not seeing, it. you know, yellow fever was in Philadelphia. If you read the history of yellow fever. So all these diseases existed, sanitation and other things changed them in vaccination. But the reality is that with climate change, all that will change. So those of us that infectious disease need to be very much involved in, in, in realizing that climate change is a problem and we need to address it. But the other thing is we need a global surveillance system, you know, just like the military has, you know, has global surveillance in, in, in looking for for issues of attacks and other things. There needs to be a global surveillance uh, looking at not only what's circulating in humans, but more importantly, what's circulating in animals, right? Uh, we need to have a one health approach to this problem, because if you think to it, every single one of these problems, 
it's a zoonosis. Every single one of these outbreaks we've seen from C from HIV, from AIDS to Zika, that we've seen in the last 20 years, they're primarily zoonosis. So we really need to get a better understanding of this, the animal reservoirs and what's happening and, and, and work in a, in a one health approach. And that surveillance system has to be built and we really don't have it. So I think we're very, uh, we're not in a good place and, and we should right. be in a much better place, but we could do it. It's just a matter of, of the global wealth will to do it. And we had already talked about the problem with even, uh, you know, monitoring diseases in the United States uh, where um, the, that, that ends up having a political dimension as well. I want to get back just a, just a minute um, to the, some of the uh, politics and information, disinformation, and maybe start with, with Caitlin. I know that, um, as an epidemiologist, you've uh, gotten your share of hits. Um, Peter uh, Hotez, uh, it's not like I'm a fan of Peter Hotez, nice guy, but uh, but he did give a, a he, he, <laughs> he got an award last week at, at IDSA, um, uh, the Tony Fauci Award, a new award for basically for courage in, in the response. Um, Tony uh, announced the award. It was really sweet. Uh, but Peter gave a pretty hard-hitting talk um, uh, about, you know, what he's faced both personally and his family and um, and didn't pull any punches. What's what's our approach to this? Um, Caitlin, I, you want to start? Um, how, how do we begin to think about this? Yeah, I don't know if I can answer it in two minutes or whatever, but yeah, I... Right. I will say that it's a huge problem. Um, I, as well as a lot of other physicians and scientists have been targeted the past three years. Um, I think that this is not just a problem in public health. This is a is a lack of institutional trust. I mean, just look at democracy. I mean, it's a huge problem right now. And that's why I'm at least facing or advocating and spending a lot of my time in figuring out how do we improve trust in public health. And I think a lot of that hate and a lot of the um, honestly fear towards scientists is driven out of uncertainty. It's driven because people don't have questions they can find answers to. It's very political. Um, and so how can we uh, learn from that and listen is uh, something I think that's going to take a lot of time. Um, but it's dangerous. It's very dangerous for individuals and it's dangerous for the field of public health. Um, in fact, when your last question of what are you concerned about? Yeah, I'm concerned about new pathogens, but even more so I'm concerned about measles and polio and the resurgence of all of these things because public health right now is going backwards. It's literally going backwards. And I am incredibly concerned about the implications that will have on disease, death, and quality of life. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't think we all, any of us really have answers, but we have to figure out in small incremental changes going forward. And we and have to all work to, we have data that, that, that life expectancy is declining in some uh, parts of our population. I know, and it's not equally distributed. Carlos, you want to I was going to say, and, and, and I appreciate Caitlin the effort he's doing, but I think all of us need to really be be working on increasing trust in public health and really pushing back because this is a, as Peter said, this is a well-articulated uh, effort that is well-funded and it's not going to go away 
on its own. We really need to to push back. And quite frankly, we need to teach in our medical schools, in our schools of public health, uh, how to tell. I guess, I, I guess that, me, me, of course, but why is this going on? Why, what, what gain do people have from, uh, from some of this? I, 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 I don't understand it, but. Well, you know, public health, public health is, is related to government, right? If you want to, if you want to, as Caitlin said, there's there's a lack of trust in institutions, and this is more than just public health. This is really has to do with trust in government. When you see the countries that had the best response are countries that have high trust in their governments. Other other approaches, uh, thoughts, um, Peter. You know, you've gotten to be. Um, a, a super communicator. Um, I don't know if, if people on the on the call know that Peter also is tapped now by the university to do this thing of news you can use, medical news you can use. Uh, so he, uh, every town hall that the university has, um, Peter um, puts together uh, quick vignettes. Uh, just t tell me a little bit about communication and and is this something that you came by naturally or is it uh, uh, is this something you discovered in yourself? I think well, you get asked that for each of the people on this panel. Yeah, for sure. I mean, communication to me um, kind of fell into my lap during the pandemic, like Caitlin mentioned, accidentally or serendipitously. Um, and I knew that I always loved teaching um, medical students and other health professional students. And part of my teaching joy was uh, really breaking down complex things into simple things, but having fun as well. Um, so during the pandemic, um, I got that opportunity to just talk about things like spike proteins and variants and stuff like that. But I think in terms of Carlos's point about activism, once you become trusted, um, and the way I would deliver the information wasn't like dogmatic, like you must do this, so you must do that. You know, you kind of are in the middle and you empathize with both sides. Um, and then you could, you know, say, hey, you know, what about the incarcerated people at San Quentin? You know, we should really think about that because it affects all of us in our, in our health system. So I think you can get in messages once you become trusted. Um, and I would say another important feature of um, hate for me during the pandemic was anti-Asian violence. Um, so the way we addressed that at UCSF was two-pronged. Um, first of all, uh, we empowered the Asian American, I must just speak specifically about this issue. Of course, this happened on other fronts as well, but around Asia, anti-Asian violence, we empowered the Asian community with science um, in, you know, Cantonese and Mandarin so that they could sort of like uh, articulate uh, or talk very, with someone who was willing to hear. And then the second thing we did was, of course, empower people around the population to be upstanders if possible. So we kind of flooded um, the the Asian media around that, um, trying to do that kind of education. So we took it from a different path of the people affected, but you can also, of course, go for the path of the people who are sort of like, you know, pre-contemplative or contemplative and try to get them there, almost like stages of change. I would I would just add so, uh, I would just add Peter uh, quickly oh, Carlos yeah yeah just very quickly Orbit said something very important I go back to HIV we need to involve the community because at the end of the day as somebody said to me look doc I'm not going to trust you or Dr Fauci somebody in South Georgia said to me 
But the moment the fireman that sits next to me in church says these vaccines are safe, I will take them, right? So we need to work with community leaders. We need to work with community organizations. We need to stop preaching from the top. And that's a big lesson from HIV, involving the community from the very beginning is what we need to do. So part of recovering the trust in public health is going to require us to get out of our silos, get out of our uh, ivory towers and work with the community. Super, super, super. So um, uh, while every time we start one of these, I wonder, can we string this on for an hour? And uh, never a problem. Um, And I want to thank, uh, we're really at the end of our time, but I want to thank uh, Carlos and Peter and and, uh, Caitlin, especially Caitlin for joining us this time. Um, The ISUSA uh, has a number of other uh, programs, and I want to just uh, mention a couple. We have another uh, thing on cardiovascular disease, but especially I want to pay attention to the RSV and influenza challenges um, that that, uh, Bonnie Maldonado and Carlos will be uh, participating in. So um, uh, lots of information, lots of education. Thank you very much. And here is another one on substance use disorder. Uh, I'm supposed to read all these things, but I won't. Uh, so thank you very much um, for participating. Uh, great audience, great panelists. Um, uh, thanks a bunch. Bye.